Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. You're listening to the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. This week, we're heading to Allensworth. It's a town of about 500 people in the San Joaquin Valley, about an hour or so north of Bakersfield, right at the edge of this region called the Tulare Lake Basin. And Allensworth has got a special history. Back in the early 1900s, it became the first town in California founded, financed, and governed by Black Americans. The community has faced many challenges throughout its history, and now it's under threat again. California is bracing for more rain and snow with a new storm on the way. At least a dozen atmospheric rivers hit California this winter. Now there's so much more moisture in the Tulare Basin that a long-drained lake is literally coming back to life. Tulare Lake is reforming, fueled by winter rainstorms, and now the historic snowpack in the southern Sierra. So it could take two years for the floodwaters to subside. We're talking about rivers that run in what used to be the largest lake west of the Mississippi, and we're trying to contain that. That just sounds ridiculous, right? The return of Tulare Lake has spelled disaster for everyone in the area. But some residents are getting hit harder than others. That's because of the power dynamics here, stretching back more than 100 years to when Allensworth was settled. Today, disadvantaged communities like Allensworth are uniquely vulnerable. Reporter Teresa Katsarillis with the Food and Environment Reporting Network visited Allensworth earlier this spring to learn how residents are coping. Takoa Kadara and his dad, Coyote, schedule the meeting at night. They're hoping the darkness will give them some cover. About a dozen of their neighbors are clustered in front of Allensworth's community center, fidgeting with the brims of their baseball hats. Behind them, a local contractor is using a forklift to pile sandbags, just in case things get worse. It's the end of March, and Allensworth is all but surrounded by water. These are the guys trying to stop it from flooding the community. There's just one problem. They can't agree on how to do it. We're going to restrict our We're going to bottleneck it. We're going to bottleneck it, and it's going to be too much pressure. One of the biggest threats to Allensworth at this point in March are these culverts, which run under the railroad tracks at the east end of town. Water is pouring out of them, headed straight for the town. This group needs to figure out how to block them off. All of that water, all of that water is what's coming through. Allensworth is used to taking care of itself. But it's not like anyone here is an expert in flood management. Some of these folks work construction. Others are farm workers or retirees. If you guys disagree with this solution, then let's go home. No, it's not let's go home. Let's come up with another solution. That's Takoa, 
playing the peacemaker. People are tense, and it's not hard to figure out why. Nicole, I'm going to just say it like it is. If I'm going to break the law, I don't need a whole bunch of people with me to break the law. Ten minutes, we're gone. These culverts they're trying to block, they're on private property, and BNSF railroad tracks run on it. It's one of the top freight transportation companies in the country. So even though this water is threatening to flood Allensworth, the people here aren't allowed to do anything about it. If they decide to block the water themselves, they'll be doing it illegally. Tokoa and Coyote drive me out to the tracks to see the culverts for myself. This constant flow is allowing the water to constantly rise. Look in the distance. Yeah, you can see see it. That's flood water right back in there. Residents have also tried to stop this flooding legally. Many, many times. BNSF won't give them permission to do it. They claim blocking the culverts could damage their tracks. And Tokoa and his family can't find a single government agency with the power to override the corporation's decision. We're here like sitting ducks waiting for the water to come and flood us out. That's Denise Kadara, Tokoa's mom and a community leader here in Allensworth. She's worried because this storm is just the beginning of the flooding she knows will continue through the summer as the snowpack melts. The water flowing is natural, but also contributed by man deciding this is where they want the water to go. For over a hundred years, water in the Tulare Lake Basin has been controlled and hoarded by a handful of powerful landowners, usually at the expense of everyone else. To understand how Allensworth ended up on the losing side of that equation, we have to go back to when the town was founded. Lieutenant Colonel Alan Allensworth was a formerly enslaved person who had become the highest-ranking Black military officer of his time. In 1908, Denise says he moved to California with a vision. To have a place where they could live on their own without the racism that was uh, rampant throughout the country and live in a free community and was a successful community. He picked a spot near Tulare Lake, a fertile ground, he hoped, for his utopia. But by the time he got there, the lake was rapidly disappearing. It had been for years. Geologists call that end of this valley one of the most engineered landscapes in human history, you know, which means that human hand has altered that land in a way that few places have been altered. Mark Arex is a journalist who's considered an expert on the water politics here. He says Colonel Allensworth and his dream team of Black doctors, professors, and farmers weren't the only people who'd settled along Tulare Lake. A group of white landowners had settled here, too. Some of them descended from slave-owning families. Many of them were Southerners who'd come from the Confederate states. They arrived here and they started grabbing the snowmelt out of those rivers and then diverting that onto their farmland. Two particularly bold landowners made a move on the lake bed itself. The soil at the bottom was dark and unusually rich. It'd be the perfect place for a farm if the lake wasn't in the way. So they drained it, diverting the water away for irrigation. Those diversions ended up pretty much drying up the lake completely. It it took a long while to get rid of that lake. Meanwhile, 
Allensworth couldn't get enough water to sustain itself, no matter how hard the community tried. White farmers diverted a river they relied on. A white-owned company refused to dig the community's wells, but it was more than happy to dig wells for a white town nearby. By the 1930s, a lot of Allensworth's original settlers had moved away. The white landowners had successfully seized the region's water for themselves. And those long-established power dynamics are still at work in the region. Fast forward to today, and Allensworth is a farmworker town with a few churches and no stoplights, where the tap water isn't safe to drink. Many of its neighbors are large corporations and wealthy farmers. They control the politics of that lake bottom. And they control a lot of local agencies, like water and reclamation districts, that make decisions about who gets water in dry years and what to do when the floods come. You have these quasi-government agencies, but they're controlled by the biggest landowners. It's a no-man's land in a lot of ways. That's the way it's operated. And so it resorts to its own devices all the time. The Tulare Lake Basin also has an illustrious history of levee sabotage. Historically, when this basin is flooded, some farmers have cut levees and blocked canals to protect their land. They've done it at the expense of their neighbors. And this kind of sabotage is still happening today. It appears a levee close to Allensworth was cut. Denise Kadara remembers when she got the news from their local stormwater manager. The Deer Creek levee on the west side of Highway 43 has been breached. We think it was an intentional breach, and everybody needs to get ready to evacuate. As communities like Allensworth brace for the snowmelt this spring, and the flood they know is coming, there's this history of water theft, sabotage, and discrimination that's always in the backs of their minds. They know they can't trust all their neighbors to have their backs. We need all the help we can get from every agency, every person that wants to help and believes in saving communities. They're used to fending for themselves. But that might not be enough this time. So they're calling everyone they can think of, all the way to the top, and they're starting to get results. Governor Gavin Newsom just visited Allensworth the other week and sat down with Denise and other community members. Put your thinking caps on because that snow is melting right now. And we're not going out this way. Allensworth residents are used to the politics in this basin working against them. But right now, they've got visibility. And they're hoping the state will act quickly. Things might actually be different this time. For The California Report, I'm Teresa Katsourilis. Teresa's story was produced in partnership with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, an investigative nonprofit. By the way, we reached out to BNSF for comment, but they didn't respond by our deadline. When you think of California rockers in the 70s, who comes to mind? The Eagles? Journey? Probably not a band made up of Filipina-American women, some of them queer, from places like Sacramento and Folsom. There aren't too many female rock groups around. I don't know what the reason for that is. But I do know that there are very few groups, male or female, that are as exciting as the queens of rock and roll, Fanny. Fanny, 
was the first all-female rock band to release an album on a major label. In fact, they released five albums by 1974, and they were a big deal. Here's musician Bonnie Raitt talking about them in a new documentary called Fanny, The Right to Rock. I think any time you look back at the history of music, especially the history of women in music, a seminal moment in time was the advent of Fanny when they came on the scene, and the quality of their records and their popularity and their significance is always going to be in, embedded in the history of music and the history of rock and roll. In a 1999 interview, David Bowie told Rolling Stone, one of the most important female bands in American rock has been buried without a trace. And he went on to say, revivify Fanny and I'll feel that my work is done. Well, Fanny's work is being revived. They put out a reunion album, and the documentary Fanny, The Right to Rock is screening at the nation's largest Asian-American film festival, CamFest, in San Francisco. It'll also be airing on PBS stations starting May 22nd. Joining us to talk about the film is director Bobby Joe Hart and the original lead guitarist from Fanny, June Millington. Hey, you guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. Nice to be here. Nice to meet you, Sasha. This is great. I'm really happy to be here. So, Bobby Joe, let's start with you. How did you decide to make a film about this all-women band from the 70s? How did you discover them? I was uh, looking for a new acoustic guitar for my daughter and uh, went on this Taylor Guitar website and they had a section or a little menu item called Stories. I scrolled down and came across June Millington, this amazing woman with this wielding this guitar and this flaming gray hair. And I was equally thrilled to discover them and equally pissed off because how did I not know about them growing up? Well, June, you and your sister, Jean, were really at the heart of Fanny. How did you guys start playing music? You know, I think music is just really in us. It's intrinsic in, in a really deep way. I firmly believe the Filipinos are incredibly musical. So when we were growing up in the Philippines, someone showed me how to, you know, play a couple of chords on the ukulele. And uh, Gene and I just picked it up right away and started to play songs off the radio. But I felt so filled and, and really accepted by music in a way that I didn't feel that I was accepted by the world. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, music is a living uh, vibration. That's really how we started. And when we got to Sacramento in 1961, I was 13 and Jean was 12, we started playing Who Nannies. And actually, some ladies at the YWCA were our first booking agents because they loved us. We were a dance band who played at Air Force bases, Army bases, a backyard barbecues, <laughs> etc. You know, we were pretty ferocious about it. Even now, I love playing rhythm guitar. so ferocious in this film when you're playing the guitar. You mentioned not only feeling accepted by music and that music felt like it was a home for you, but in the film you also talk about the racism that you experienced coming to California, also the homophobia and the misogyny. Yeah, well, all the phobias. <laughs> we were associated with all the phobias. You know, Gene and I, our dad is American from Burlington, Vermont. He was a graduate of Annapolis. He was white. He was American. And our mom was a, a Filipino, flat out, you know, culturally. So we are half and half. There's a crack there in the middle. Mm -hmm. 
And we fell between that crack. The music not only accepted us, it caused society to begin to take a listen and notice us. Kids who had totally ignored me before, I mean, at least they would say, they would be passing me in the hall, they'd say, I really like that song. Wow. Na, 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 or I'm going to wait till the midnight hour, baby love, baby love, you know. It was really hard work for us to learn how to do it and for me to, to learn how to play lead guitar. I had to claw my way from the back. And mm-hmm. that's partly the reason why I'm ferocious. It's not just my love for music and for the beat and writing songs. It really is the fact that it connected me to everything. How did you guys come up with the name Fanny? Where did that come from? It was a double entendre, of course, even here in the U.S., and and we're kind of, you know, kidded a lot about what it means in England, but we didn't know that. To tell you the (laughs) truth, Fanny, for me, was my avatar. She was the grandmother who was in front of me with, you know, warm milk and fresh cookies. She was my front person because I was so shy. How I was going to play that lead guitar, that loud lead guitar, you know? So I hid behind her and totally shredded. That really worked for me. But I know that my Aunt Fanny or my Grandma Fanny was the one who was in front of me while I completely just got louder. (laughs) How did you guys get signed? How did you go from being a high school band called The Svelts to actually making it in L.A.? Uh, fall of 68, and we played at Open Hood Night at the Troubadour. The guy who ran the club, I mean, he was just, you know, like a lot of guys at the time, very condescending and supercilious. And let me tell you, that night is actually the best audience reaction I've ever had in my entire career. People not only clapped and, and jumped up and went crazy, they stood on the tables. And Norma Kemper, who worked for Richard Perry at Reprise, uh, I think he had sent her out as sort of a a scout. She called him up and raved. And so we met him at a studio in Hollywood, played for him the next or two days later, and he went crazy too. So very quickly, um, the networking and and the fact that everyone knew that there were these chicks (laughs) who could play, we really could play, you know. And we played day and night. I mean, all sorts of people came over to jam. And the house you all were staying in, it was called Fanny Hill, right? We named it Fanny Hill, Hill, Right. It was this fantastical building. It used to be owned by Hedy Lamarr. I want to just play a clip from the film talking Uh about Fanny Hill. Fanny Hill was just a huge experiment, and it was girlfriends. It was like we had our own sorority, but we had amps. It was a sorority with electrical guitars and uh, jamming day and night. You know, some of my favorite moments in this film are when you guys are just really rocking hard and you can see the skill. You can see you guys working the frets and and the sweat on your faces. Um, and there's this moment where John Sebastian from Love and Spoonful, he's describing Jean on bass. I had never seen a woman do a stink face, but when she would play one of these real vicious bass lines, you could see this... There was honestly no 
space in anyone's brains to even imagine that they would see an all-girl band in front of them. We might as well said we were going to walk on the moon. So, you know, aside from all the resistance, what we actually had to do was put a picture frame out in the air and walk into that frame so that people could see that it was happening. I can't tell you how important that is because now you see all-girl bands, you see women playing, you know, et cetera. It's, it's a lot more common. But back then, I'm telling you, they couldn't imagine it. So we had to fill that frame, and that was a big job. Charity Ball was one of the first successful singles, your first top 40 hit in 1971, right? Tell us what that moment was like when you realized that you guys had made the top 40. Do you remember how you felt? You know, the reviews that we got were so mixed. I, you know, the condescension and the, the resistance to just say, these girls are kicking ass, are really good, you've got to listen to them. They would always give these sort of second guesses, you know, like maybe they had guys playing with them in the studio. Well, and you guys, you know, did hang out, as you say, with a lot of famous musicians, um, Bowie, you know, and others. But also you had to present this kind of persona to the mainstream audience. And the film really gets into that, right? I mean, if you were queer, you had to pretend you had boyfriends, you know, they pressured you guys to wear skimpier outfits. So eventually it sounds like that just got really exhausting. Well, the skimpier outfits came up. Because by the time of our fourth album, we were not selling as many units as they wanted. I mean, we were selling 60000 about per album, which is now really good. But, you know, they were losing confidence in us, and that is too bad because I was so tired by that time. I mean, remember, we were on the road all the time or writing or recording. You know, we didn't really have that much time to ourselves. Along with all the disparaging comments that we got from the press, that was just a little too much for me. That's partly the reason why I left. June, you left the band in 1973, and Fanny continued with other musicians for a while. The film documents the original band coming back together after, like, five decades to record a new album called Fanny Walk the Earth. And it is so joyful to watch you together, to see Bree Darling drumming, you on guitar, and your sister Jean on bass just rocking out, singing together a cappella. And, you know, just knowing that you've still got it. I have to tell you guys, I watched this movie right on the eve of my 50th birthday. And, you know, I was feeling some anxiety about getting older. And then the film starts off with the three of you, your hair flying back in a convertible, just rocking it out. And it just made me think, you know what? I can age gracefully just like these chicks and still rock it. We discussed with great pleasure knowing that people were going to hear this album, they wouldn't know what age we were necessarily, you know? And uh, we, we really relished that idea. Yeah, we're, we're just going to rock it. We're going to shred. We're going to do our thing. And the age doesn't matter, you know? I mean, it only mattered in the sense that we were so, sort of reaching back and touching ourselves at 16, 17, while being in our late 60s. But the age was not a huge component because it was always who we were. She comes when we need her. She comes when there's need. 
Bobby Joe, was that part of your mission in making this film to show that age is not a barrier to playing music? Michelle Yeoh just came into my head, you know, her at the Academy Awards standing there, you know, I'm in my prime, you know, and that's a message that I think that Fanny sends, the film sends, and there is no age where you shouldn't be able to do anything that you want. Any age is the right age. You know, as my 90-year-old mother-in-law used to say, age is just a number, honey. And, you know, then she'd stand on her head in the corner and do yoga with my daughter, you know, at 90. Well, one of the things the film does is it shows how the new album, you know, helped you reach new audiences, including, you know, younger women who've been discovering your music. I want to play a clip from Ruby Ibarra, who is a Filipino rapper from the Bay Area. How come I didn't know about these women earlier on? How come I don't hear my my, my parents playing their music or my friends or, or even people in the community? They were basically erased from musical history. And I think everyone needs to know their names. I just really hope the film can reach out to a younger audience, you know, just be yourself, you know, whatever size you may be, whatever identity you may be, whatever, it gets all good and it's all beautiful and, and just be yourself. There's nobody like you out there. And as June says in the film, you know, rock and roll is a metaphor. You know, you fall down, you pick yourself back up. Fanny, literally, it's not only fighting for women's right to rock and in terms of music, but to have a voice and to have a loud voice and for that loud voice to be amazing and accepted and embraced in our society. Yes, be who you are, but you got to have the gargoyles at the door because there are a lot of people who are not going to believe in you. We just came at you. You, you really, we didn't want to give you time to think. Or barely breathe. We just wanted to be at you and, and, and you be in our space. And I believe that's what we did then and that's what we're doing now. June, you've actually created a project. It's been going on for decades now to support young girls and women who want to go into music. What advice do you give them? You just gotta not quit. You pick yourself up, you keep going because you know what? And this is what I tell the girls. You're going to fail almost all the time. Those moments of when it comes together, they're very precious. When it comes together and, you know, you, you actually know that you're there. You know that you're representing. When we became Fanny and started to record, we knew we were representing. So we've been doing that for 50 years. Whether or not people remembered us, and for a long time they did not. But it doesn't matter because when you catch back up with Fanny, we're just as fresh as ever. <laughs> That's what's blowing people's minds. What's next for Fanny? You guys have put out this reunion album. What's next? We don't know. I mean, we're just waiting for the future to catch up with us, so. (laughs) And what about for the film, Bobby Joe? I'd like the film to be a, a catalyst for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to put Fanny in there. That's been my dream from the beginning is that this can be a catalyst to help raise awareness um, to the right people to say, hey, these women have, you know, they are essential to rock and roll history. They're groundbreaking. They're phenomenal. And they deserve to be in there. I want to thank you both for talking with us. This has been such a fun conversation. And I feel so energized by the music and by the movie. Thank you, Sasha. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Ain't that peculiar? Ain't that 
June Millington, the lead guitarist from Fanny, and Bobby Joe Hart, the director of the new film Fanny, The Right to Rock. And that's it for the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer director. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And our intern is Jessica Carissa. And I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.